I know that you've been in Job on Wednesday nights with Pastor Brett, and we're going to start in Job, but move quickly from there. But I, I, I'd like to bring some, some thoughts to you this evening um, that are kind of at work in the, in the book of Job, and they are some assumptions. If you would to go to chapter 37 of Job with me. Here in, in chapter 37, we have a new character that is uh, introduced. Up to this point, we've uh, been introduced to uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And um, so far, we've been uh, introduced to Zophar, right? Um, but but uh, a few chapters earlier... Uh, uh, beginning in chapter 32, we are int introduced to a new character, Elihu. And here in, and Elihu, uh, I, he, he takes the stage and he keeps it for a long time, all right? He starts in chapter 32 and, and he continues uh, through chapter 37. And if you'll note, chapter 38, guess who takes the stage after Elihu? <laughs> God. God takes the stage. And um, here in chapter 37, Elihu is, is I, I, I can only imagine that what is going on, even as he speaks to Job, um, there is a storm gathering. I don't know about you, but I love Arizona storms. Um, I love the fact that you can see them coming from a distance. I grew up in West Texas, and we had the very same experience there. You could see a storm a hundred miles away, and watch it come forward. And, and I can only imagine that's kind of what may be going on at this point. And in this chapter 37, um, uh, Elihu is, is saying, you know, there's, there's something going on here with this storm. Look at verse 12 with me. And he's talking about the storm. He says, and it changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that is by God's guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. This storm that's gathering is, is at the command of God Almighty. That's amazing. Yeah, we know Jesus spoke to the storm on the Sea of Galilee, right? He, he, all he did was speak to the storm, shh, be silent, and it stopped, and this was no small storm. This was a storm that had veteran fishermen in a boat scared for their lives, and all he did was say, shh, be still. God is sovereign over all creation, over all things. Now, going on here in verse 13, we see three assumptions, three assumptions about this storm and truly about what we've been, what the whole book of Job has been talking about. And believe me, I have no desire at all to rush ahead uh, where Brett is at. I know he left off in chapter 26, but where we're going tonight starts really well here. There's three assumptions here that are brought out. Elihu says, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, 
He causes it to happen. In other words, God is sovereignly commanding not just this storm, but all things for three assumptions, either for correction or for his world or for loving kindness. I think that's, um, I think that's very, very instructive for us. Now, we all experience storms in our lives, don't we? We all experience difficulty that comes our way. And, and I think we, we operate with, we tend to operate with assumptions related to those storms in our lives. Um, very often, we experience suffering um, with that very first assumption. We think it's about God correcting us somehow. We think about these hardships that were happening are happening to us or that we're embroiled in, and we think, surely God must be correcting me or disciplining me. Have you ever heard somebody say, I don't know what I did, but here I am in this troubled spot? And they assume that God is correcting. You know, I have to say that sometimes, quite honestly, the messes that we get ourselves in are just logical consequences. There's just the logical consequence of our stupidity, right? <laughs> yeah, that pretty much sums it up, right? We, we find ourselves in these places and we often want to blame our hardship on God. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't uh, move within our circumstances to bring about correction in our lives. But it's not always the case. I'll tell you this. I think there's an assumption that is missing here. There's three that are listed, but there are, I believe that there's something missing. And we're going to get to it as we, as we go on through uh, the, the, the word this evening. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4? These storms in our lives very often um, can be likened unto suffering because, quite honestly, they bring suffering, right? They, the hardship uh, that we, we deal with. And we, it, is, it is suffering that very often we, we seem to think that it is um, God correcting um, us. Chapter 4 of 1 Peter Beloved, do not be surprised, verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised. Let's stop right there. Beloved. I love the fact that Peter says, beloved. It's like saying, dear ones, my little children, these who I love so very much, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also the revelation of his glory, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Hmm. That's a head scratcher right there. 
Let me read that again. But to the verse 13, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. The revelation of his glory. Could it be possible that some of the storms that come our direction are there because God is intent in revealing his glory even in us and through us as a result of how we respond to these trials, these difficulties, these storms that we encounter? Look with me at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We know uh, those who have have been uh, in Christ for a long time, been a part of the church, may have Romans 8, 28. That is a a scripture that becomes kind of a, a hallmark scripture for a lot of believers. And they memorize it. They memorize it for a good reason. Because there we hear the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, this illustrates the fact that yes, God God is sovereign and he is at work in all things. Now, it doesn't say he causes all things, does it? It says he causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what is, what is, we, I, I get the idea of those who love God, but what is, what is this business of to those who are called according to his purpose? What is God's purpose? That's something that we, we need to, I think, dig it a little deeper into. Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, predestined is one of those big words. It's kind of scary to a lot of people. Okay. It, it is honestly one of those things that, that throws up even red flags in the, in the hearts and minds of some people because it, it indicates uh, in the minds of some people that God has this, all thing, this whole thing figured out and he is manipulating your life. You really have no say. You have no choice in what you're doing. I have to say that the intention in that word predestination or predestined is that this is God's great intent. This is God's great intention for us. Now, we all know, all you have to do is look at the world around us and our very own lives. We make choices. Do we not? We all make choices. Some of us made a choice tonight And this is not by way of confession. I want you to know. Some of us made a choice to speed through that yellow light and maybe even got a little bit of the red tonight. 
right? On the way here. Some of us made that choice. We could have easily chose to step on the brake and slow down and stop. But that's kind of the way we do things, right? We make choices and there are consequences for those choices. Thankfully, you're here safely. You were not involved in an auto accident. I don't know. You can keep it to yourself. Maybe you've got a ticket. I don't know. But the, the, the fact of the matter is there are consequences for the choices that we make. But this word predestined speaks of God's great intention for us. His great desire. How many of you are parents? Okay. Now, how many of you had really good ideas or plans for your children? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is my son. He's going to be a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> How many of your kids have fulfilled your intentions for them? <laughs> hmm, the numbers are much fewer. There, thank the Lord there are some that still raise their hands, and that's marvelous. That's wonderful. But they make choices, right? And we don't manipulate their lives, but we have intentions for them. That's, this, that's, God's, that's God's big intention here. He predestined some to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Conformed to the image of his son. What in the world does that mean? Well, number one, who is God's son? Jesus. Jesus Christ is God's son, right? Now, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, God's son? Okay, to bear his likeness, to look like him. Oh, you know what? We have a guy here at our church who looks an awful lot like what I think Jesus must have looked like. He leads worship um, every other week or so here. Do any of you know Andy? Doesn't he remind you of what you think Jesus should look like? Does that not mean what? To bear his likeness? No. You're right. It's not so much about the outward appearance. It's about the heart. I'm glad to say that Andy's heart also looks a lot like Jesus. But. How do we know what that is about? Well, we, we look at the life of Jesus. We understand what he taught and what he did, how he lived out within, with complete congruity, matching what he said with what he did. And we, we look at that and understand this is the image of Christ. And God's great intention for us is that we would bear his likeness. That we, would, that we would look a lot like Jesus in how, what he taught and what he did. Let's go on. For, uh, beginning in 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. His great intention was to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. 
And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Isn't that awesome? He's got it all taken care of. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? That's a, that's a rhetorical question, right? It's like, hey, if God's on your team, dude, you got it sewn up. There's no issue. So, Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That means God, he who, who did, not, uh, did not spare his own son, God Almighty gave us his son, who was not only uh, Philippians chapter 2, emptied himself, becoming the form of a bondservant, but he became obedient even to the point of death. He died on a cross to save us from the penalty of our sin. Amen and amen. That's a glorious thing, is it not? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single last one of us. And Jesus came, gave his life to pay that penalty. Now, will he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. God is the one who justifies. May I also say, if he is a justifier, he is the judge also. He, he is the one. Who is the one who condemns? If God justifies, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin, but he also rose again. We call that the resurrection, right? We're getting ready to celebrate that on, on April 1st. No kidding. Okay? That's, that's the glorious truth of the gospel, that Jesus paid the penalty of our sin, and then he rose from the dead, and the the marvelous thing is, the Apostle Paul writes that the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us to live out his life. That's Ephesians chapter 1. I invite you to read it tonight because it's a glorious, glorious truth. Let's go on. Verse 35. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress persecution or famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. That sounds like pretty serious stuff, right? It sounds like really profound hardship, suffering like you and I have never even begun to experience. Now, wait a second. If our assumption is that suffering is God's judgment, what's going on here? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall these trials, shall these storms, shall these difficulties that we face, 
tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to, the, to be slaughtered. But in all these things, this list that Paul just put together for us in verse 35. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but that's worth a hallelujah. Amen? Yes. We sang about that earlier. I don't know if you connected the dots there. That was, that was part of one of the songs that we sang earlier. Glorious truth that this suffering, this hardship doesn't separate us from God's love. And the assumption that it is connected to judgment is not one leap that we should automatically make. Now, Let's go back to verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. None of these things will separate us from the love of God. There's two words in there that pique my interest. Nor principalities nor powers. Where else in the New Testament, those of you who are familiar with the writings of Paul, where else in his writings do we hear those words? I'll give you a hint. It has something to do with armor. Ephesians chapter 6. Go there with me. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's begin in verse 10. Ephesians is to the right of where we have been there in Romans. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against powers against the world forces of this darkness against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places i think another assumption that we too often make when it comes to dealing with adversity is that somehow there is an enemy at work. When we come up against struggle, when we come up against opposition, we assume too often that there is an enemy at work. And that enemy, unfortunately, 
in the minds of many of us, ends up being a person or people. And it's important to understand that our struggle is not with flesh and blood. If we experience opposition, it's not because it's, let me say this, the assumption cannot be made that it's simply the enemy and it's you or you or you that's standing against me. I don't even think we can assume that it's the devil standing against us. Because there's a principle at work here. Remember what we're called to? Remember God's great intention? What is that? Back in Romans 8, being conformed to the image of his son. It's interesting to me that language speaks to me. It brings to mind the idea of sculpting. The image of his son. What would that, how would that happen if it was done in stone, in marble? Very often it's done with a hammer and a chisel, right? Could God be behind that hammer and chisel? Is it always, is opposition always the enemy, the enemy of our souls? I think not. I, I, I do want to do a little bit of a, uh, a rabbit trail here. So I, I think we struggle very often, again, with this idea of anything that opposes me must be an enemy. And if it's, if it, uh, I'm, I'm going to get personal here, okay? Sometimes, even within the church, we experience opposition from somebody, another brother or sister. And I want to say to you that, that if we jump to the conclusion that the enemy is at work in that individual or through that individual simply because there's opposition to my thought process or my ideas or, or, or my convictions. I venture to say we sell God really, really short. Because very often God is at work in the midst of those giving and taking, those struggles, that, that rubbing, that what, what happened to the scripture, iron sharpens iron. How does iron sharpen iron? With blows, right? Those of you who are, 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 are studying in the scriptures know that the apostle Paul talks about confronting the apostle Peter in, in Jerusalem. And he says, I confronted him to his face. What did he confront him with? Well, he confronted him with the fact that, that salvation 
is God's idea for all humanity, not just for the Jews. And Peter was instructed by God himself with the vision of the sheep coming down and, 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 and all of these animals that were there. And, and God said to Peter in this vision, arise, kill and eat. And Peter says, well, wait a minute, God, there are some things in there that aren't kosher. And I'm a Jew. And I got to live by what's kosher. What was the message in that? God said, is what I've made pure is pure. And it's all available. This gospel, this good news is for everyone. And Peter found himself in a corner there in Jerusalem with the council of elders. And, and there was this thought process that he was wrapped up into, caught up into after having that experience of God speaking to him and and Peter was caught up in this thought process that salvation is for the Jews, but not for the Gentiles. And Paul says, I rebuked him. I confronted him to his face. Now, is that not opposition? Whoa. These are two heavyweights going back, uh, back and forth with each other. I don't know if there was a back and forth. But the reality is there was confrontation. And that confrontation brought about a greater purity. It brought about a life of, of, of greater understanding of the grace of God. So I, I guess, I, again, I want, to, I want to reiterate this idea that when we experience opposition, it's not always the enemy. And it's not always judgment. How do we respond to that stuff? I, go to Psalm 37 with me. There's some really, I, I think some awesome treasures here. Psalm 37, honestly, is, is one of these Psalms that has, um, uh, it bugs me a little bit. Let me say that. It bugs me just a little bit because, because I think there are those who want to get onto this bandwagon of the enemy, this enemy and that enemy and, 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 and opposition. Every opposition to me is the enemy. And honestly, we see a lot of that in the, in the Psalms. And it's quite very honestly, it is, it is an emotional outcry very often, of a person who feels persecuted. A lot of it times, it's David. But, and this, this psalm is attributed to David. But that, that idea that everything that opposes me is an enemy, is, is the enemy or an enemy, that kind of thinking is really black and white. It's, um, here's a 50 cent word, dichotomous. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means this extreme or that extreme. 
We go to the margins a lot of the time and, and say, this, this must be the enemy here. This must be the enemy there. And I'm in, I'm in this camp and you're in that camp and never shall the two even converse. And we get our, we get our heads so messed up on that kind of stuff that when it comes to talking about unity with believers that we may disagree on a few things with, we can't handle it. And that's not God's intention, I don't believe. We get into this catastrophic kind of, of thinking that says it's, it's, we're either off the rails or we're, or we're safe in this little lane. No. No, the beauty of, the beauty of, of walking with Christ is that he includes all of this in our lives, he works all things together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. His purpose, which is being conformed to the image of his son. Let's look at the psalmist, the instruction to us. He says, do not fret because of evildoers. Now, I realize, I realize I'm making a little bit of a leap here. Because he's not necessarily talking about enemies but he are, or being confronted by enemies. Rather, he's talking about being jealous of evildoers. Hmm. Think that could ever happen? Have you ever asked, Lord, why in the world do they prosper and, and they're doing all this ungodly stuff, this stuff that is a, a, an abomination to you. And here I sit trying to, to walk in your paths and I'm suffering. Why does that happen? That's exactly what the psalmist is asking here. He says, do not fret because of evildoers. The word fret there, the Hebrew word, um, really means to be or become hot or angry. In other words, do not be angry because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither and quickly, like the grass, will fade like the green herb. Rather, and there are a number of Active verbs that are lined up right here. Verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. Instead of, instead of getting angry about this, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Dwell means to live. Set your roots down and stay there. Don't, don't entertain this idea that I'm going to just bolt. I'm going to escape. I'm just going to leave. Because I'm so angry at this person. No. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Cultivation is a, it's an agrarian term, right? That means it has to do with farming. Okay, and how do you cultivate? Well, you, you, you tear it up. You, you take a rake and you, you tear up the ground. 
right? And why do you do that? How many of you have ever had a garden? Okay, good few of us. And what do you do when the weeds come? You pull them out if it's a small garden. But if it's a big garden, what do you do? You cultivate. You go through with a, um, uh, a rake that has three or five tines on it that goes like this. And it scrapes the ground and it tears it up and uproots all the weeds. That's called cultivation. Cultivation also includes water. It means hydrating this hard, crusty ground, getting it ready for productivity. That's what you do with, with ground that's been, that's been fallow or been, been uh, left to just sit for a while. You water it. You, you work the soil. Dwell in the land and cultivate, work up faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. What? Yeah. Let him be your joy. Let the Lord be your joy. Get your focus off of this thing that is troubling you and put your focus on the Lord. Delight in him. And he will give you the desires of your heart. What are the desires of your heart? Peace. And righteousness, those are the, honestly, when you stop and think about it, the thing that people want most is contentment, right? They want to be happy. They want to be, they want to be content in life. They don't want to be dealing with this struggle and hardship. Well, that, that, that's the desire of the heart. And, and he says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. When you commit something, you're all in, right? There's no going back. There's, you're all in. Trust also in him and he will do it. Trust him. And he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. In other words, your righteousness that will, will shine. And there will be justification. You don't have to worry about that. That's God's business, right? He's the judge, not you and not them. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Man, alive, when you're in the midst of trouble, that's the hardest thing to do, isn't it? You're stirred up all the time. No, rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. No, but God, I got to fix it right now. I, I got to fix this. Wait patiently. Do not fret. In other words, don't be angry because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Stop it. Stop it. But I can't. I can't control my anger. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. That's the resurrection life of Christ at work in you, able to do what you cannot do on your own. As believers, we absolutely have that capability. 
cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret or be angry because it leads only to evil doing. Oh, those words. I, 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 I can only imagine the psalmist as he writes this pleading. And the Lord in the midst of this, as this is inspired by his spirit, is pleading with us. Don't fret. Don't be angry. Don't let anger have its way with you because it only leads to evil doing. And evil doing only creates heart, more hardship and heartache. Stop. Cease. I really believe that this is God's great intention for us. In our life together, we're going to experience hardship. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody saying if he was a real Christian, he wouldn't do that. Ever heard that? <laughs> I'm sorry, but that, that really doesn't have a place among us as believers. Who's doing the judging then? It's not God. It's not Christ because Christ has redeemed those that we call brothers and sisters. He has established them in his righteousness. How dare we? How dare we say they couldn't be a Christian because they did this to me? No. Get off your hobby horse. And, and be real about this. That it's not your place to judge. Rather, it's your place to cease from anger, forsake wrath, and not be brought into this thought, this dichotomous thinking that says, it's got to be the enemy. It's got to be Something else to God's judgment. No. There is yet another assumption. So we go back to Job 37. There is another assumption that I think we need to consider. And that consider is, that, that assumption would be, is God sanctifying in the midst of this storm? Is God shaping us in his image in the midst of this storm? Is God doing something for his glory in this storm? In the context of Job, if you look at chapter 1, we see at the very beginning of Job, chapter 1, verse 6, now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered, 
to the Lord from roaming about the earth and walking around on it. First Peter five verse 18 says that the enemy prowls about. He prowls about looking for someone to devour. And that's exactly what he was doing. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And you know the rest of the story. God said, Satan said, if, if, if he had hardship in his life, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't bless you at all. The only reason he blesses you is because you've blessed him. And said, God, God said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take your wager. Try it. You can do everything, anything to him that you want to, but, but take his life. So that's what we see unfolding in the story of Job. Even Job's wife said to him in the second chapter, verse 9, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Just get over it. Let it end. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish, uh, as, as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I think Job is an awesome picture of what it means to walk in the power of the resurrection. Even before, even before Jesus came and died for his sins. That's a picture for all of us. I invite you, um, take a look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 through 21. Take a look at that and, and consider what it means to walk in the spirit. There are many places within the epistles of Paul, uh, the writings of Paul, to, uh, that, that uh, bear this kind of thing out that says, this is what it means to live a Christian life. Colossians chapter 3 is one of those. Um, Second Thessalonians or First Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 is another one of those. It speaks of, it's just a list of what it means, what it looks like to live a Christian life. And it doesn't include blaming others for our hardship. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your blessing, for the fact that you, honestly, you even entrust us with hardship. Because Lord, we know that very often, what's at work there is that you are shaping us into your image. And I, I, Lord, I know for myself, I want to look more and more and more like you. And I pray that that would be the desire of our hearts collectively. As we walk together in faith and in courage and in blessing that we would we would hang on to these truths and not descend into um, blame or shame but rather walk in the unity you designed us for thank you for your grace in that 
Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of the week. I hope it's not filled with a whole lot of hardship. Let me say that.